Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our live stream broadcast of this morning's service. And uh, before we begin, I got a few announcements. Uh, please, uh, you weren't able to make the uh, Zoom meeting on Friday that we had for the church. Uh, please check our website for uh, reopening uh, information. We are trying to get our church opened a week from today. We're waiting on the Park District to decide if that will allow us to do that. We'll keep you informed through email blasts, and then if you go on the website, you'll be able to see what's happening as well. Also, this Wednesday, uh, in our, before we begin our uh, Revelation study, we will have communion. So have your communion elements ready to go, and we will end the service with communion. So uh, please uh, have your elements ready to go so we can uh, have communion together, okay? And um, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure you've been watching the news and uh, how the uh, riots have uh, reached Chicago. And last night, um, uh, major damage was done to the city. So let's pray for today's service, but also include our prayers for our city and around the nation. Father, we come to you this morning in Jesus' precious name. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace, your mercies, which are new every morning. And Lord, we pray that, yes, you would first of all bless the uh, message today, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that, Lord, you'll give us grace to uh, understand and apply all that we learn today. Father, a special prayer for our nation, which is right now um, in chaos, confusion, and many are being um, hurt. Um, Lord, the riots are taking place around the country. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, cause these riots to end, that nobody else would be hurt, that, Lord, you would be with our city, beautiful city of Chicago, that, Lord, you would cause the riots to stop and allow the city to uh, begin to clean up and uh, be restored so that uh, shops can open again and people can make a living. But, uh, Father, we pray for all those who are angry and upset that, Lord, you would bring him to Jesus, Father. A lot of anger in this world, a lot of anger in our country. We pray, Lord, that you'd be merciful to us and touch these uh, men and women. And, uh, Lord, bring them to Jesus and take all that anger out of their hearts and replace it with your peace and your love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I checked my notes and... Uh, <laughs> Last time we were in John's Gospel, which is before the COVID-19 lockdown, was way back on March 8th. And since that time, we uh, did a series of special messages, which I believe the Lord laid on my heart to share with all of you. Messages that were designed to, you know, speak to your hearts within the context of the uh, coronavirus uh, outbreak, uh, outbreak that we've been living with. If you'd like to access any of those special messages... You can go to our website, cclkgrove.org, and uh, you can find them there and uh, check those out. But uh, now I believe the Lord wants us to return to our study in John's Gospel, where we find ourselves in chapter 10. So if you turn there, please, John chapter 10. As you're doing that, let me just give you a quick reminder. The focus of John chapter 10 has been Jesus as the Good Shepherd the Good Shepherd, the one who was willing and eventually did lay down his life for his sheep, which is in contrast to the bad shepherds of Israel, the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees, who were nothing more than selfish, corrupt hirelings, as Jesus called them in verses 12 and 13. Uh, they didn't care about the sheep, Jesus said. They were only hirelings. They, they were hired to do a job but didn't have any real love for the sheep so that when the wolves came, and that would be false teachers, false doctrine, they, they ran uh, because they didn't have any love for the sheep. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and that's our shepherd. Now, Jesus indicted these uh, men, and this is where we were last time, okay? You're going to have to go. I can't review the whole thing. You're going to have to go online and, and pull out the last study, listen to it, but uh, in our last study, Jesus indicted these men for their rejection of him by saying to them, verse 26, John 10, verse 26, 
but you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I, I and my Father are one. Now, it was that last statement by Jesus, uh, I and my Father are one, that triggered these religious leaders. And as a result, we read in verse 31, then the Jews, and remember in John's gospel, whenever he uses the word Jews, he's not talking about the Jewish people in general. He's talking about the Jewish leadership in particular, okay? Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. The statement, the Jews took up stones again to stone Jesus indicates, obviously, this wasn't the first time they wanted to stone him to death for something he claimed about himself. You see, Jesus had been declaring his oneness and equality with the Father from the very beginning of his public ministry. In John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, we read, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. He healed a person on the Sabbath. They didn't like that. But Jesus answered them, My Father, oh, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now, first of all, you hear that, you go, well, what's the big deal? Okay, so uh, yes, he called God his father. So what? I mean, Christians do that all the time. Uh, we all refer to God as our Father. In fact, Jesus even taught us to pray our Father who is in heaven. So I don't understand the big deal. I don't understand what got them so riled up. Well, it's true that um, Jesus did teach us to call uh, as Christians, as his disciples, uh, God in heaven, our Father. But you have to understand the Christian mindset in calling God our Father today was a lot different from the Jewish mindset in Jesus' day. You see, in Jewish culture, the mindset was that a son was always equal with his father. In personhood, not in authority, the father was always greater in authority, but in personhood and in essential humanity, they were equal. The Jews viewed themselves collectively as the sons of God. They did. But listen, by creation, by creation, or in other words, that God was their father in the sense that he gave them life as an act of his creative power, but not that he was their father relationally in the sense that he birthed them in any way. Jesus, on the other hand, claimed that he was the son of God, but went as far as to say he was the only, listen, begotten son of God. You can read about that in John 3, verses 16 and 18. This set the Lord Jesus apart from the Orthodox Jewish belief that God was, that, that the God of Israel uh, was their father by creation, whereas Jesus was claiming to be God's son, listen, by birth and personhood. Again, in the Jewish mind, a son was always equal with his father which is why they were so angry when Jesus said that God was his father by birth. We read again in John 5.18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself, and the Greek is continually making himself. So there was no, uh, nothing new. This was the hallmark of his ministry, that he always went around everywhere, he taught, he taught that he was equal with his father, um, making himself equal with God. And then in John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus doubled down on that claim when he said in verse 30, I and my father are one. The Jewish leaders clearly understood 
that no one can be one with God who is not equal with God, and no one can be equal with God who is not himself God. And so they rightly understood that Jesus was claiming divinity for himself, and in their minds that constituted blasphemy. Now, regardless of what the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the way international people, or any other group that tells you Jesus wasn't God, he never claimed to be God, if you hear any person or group tell you that, please understand that that is pure heresy and is not supported by the words of Jesus himself. And to prove it, you can take them to, we'll just stay in John's Gospel, uh, but you can take them to John chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, John chapter 10, verse 30, chapter 12, verse 45, and one of my favorites, John 14, verse 9, to show them how Jesus constantly talked about his equality with the Father, his oneness with the Father, and how to look at him, to look at Jesus, was in fact to look at God the Father. Again, John 14, verse 9. The fact is that those who heard Jesus make these claims knew he was claiming to be God, which is why they wanted to kill him. And in fact, in John 10, verse 31, they did pick up stones to kill him for blasphemy, for blasphemy. Look, and I've said this before, let me say it again. If they had misunderstood what Jesus was claiming about himself, when they picked up stones to kill him, the Lord Jesus would have immediately, of course, realized they were going to stone him for blasphemy. If they had misunderstood what he was saying about himself, what he was claiming for himself, he would have immediately corrected them by saying, hold it, guys, you must understand, I'm not claiming to be God, and would have gone ahead to correct the record. Of course, he didn't do that because he agreed with their understanding of who he was. They had it right. They had it right. They understood perfectly who he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God, the second person of the Trinity in human form. Now, let me just read what one commentator says about Jesus calling uh, himself one with the Father, because I want to clear up maybe any misconceptions. But uh, one commentator brings some clarification to the statement, I and my Father are one, that Jesus said in verse 30. He said, and I quote, the word one does not suggest that the Father and the Son are identical persons. Rather, it means that they are one in essence. The Father is God and the Son is God, but the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. He is speaking about unity, not identity, end quote. Important point, all right? Back in John 10, verse 31, then the Jewish leadership took up stones, religious leadership took up stones again to stone him. Verse 32, Jesus answered them. He said, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself God. And again, the Jewish leaders clearly understood that Jesus had been claiming, and again, all throughout his public ministry, to be God. He was all over the place. He claimed to be the great I Am. The voice from the burning bush, reference Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. All throughout his public ministry, he went around claiming to be the great I Am, almighty God in human form. In the Jewish mind, Anyone claiming to be God was committing blasphemy, as you can imagine. And according to Jewish law, blasphemy carried with it a mandatory death sentence by stoning. I'll just read you one passage on this. Leviticus 24, verse 16. Leviticus 24, verse 16, which says, Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be stoned to death by the whole community of Israel. Any native-born Israelite or foreigner among you who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. Now, of course, anyone claiming to be the Lord God uh, would be blasphemous in their minds for any man uh, to declare himself to be 
the God of Israel, the God Almighty, of course that would have been a blasphemous uh, idea in their mind. So, you know, but I want you to understand, all right? They felt that they were absolutely justified in killing Jesus because he was claiming equality with God. He was claiming to be God, and that constituted blasphemy, and therefore, according to the law, he had to be stoned. Now listen, at this point in the narrative, Jesus says something um, that is puzzling, something that has been the source of confusion and misinterpretation over the years. Let me read it to you. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do, excuse me, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. Uh, let's unpack this, all right? We won't get through all of it today, but but we'll get to the parts that are the most confusing, all right? But let's unpack this, since uh, wrongly interpreting the words of Jesus uh, here could send, and, and in fact have sent, some down the path of heresy, and in particular I'm thinking of New Age theology. Let's start with the statement of Jesus that in the law of God, God said, you are God's. To properly interpret this statement, we need to go back to where in the law God made this statement, to whom he made it, and in what context did he make it. Uh, in Bible interpretation, uh, excuse me, Bible, um, yes, interpretation and all, and knowing what God is, context is everything, okay? Um, but we got to go back. If you take the time to study this statement, Commentators will, re will refer you back to Psalm 82, verse 6, which reads, You are gods, God speaking, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. The problem is, Jesus said that this statement was written, verse 34, in your law, the law of Moses. But listen, folks, Psalm 82, verse 6 is not the law. It's the Psalms. Upon further study, we realize that the Holy Spirit is inspiring the psalmist to take something that was written in the law of God, something that God had previously said to make his point, the psalmist did. We know this because he begins verse 6 of Psalm 82 with the words, I said you are God's, indicating that this, is, this was not something new but something God had already said in the law, something the psalmist is alluding to, but listen, not quoting from. You'll never find this phrase, uh, I said you are gods in the law. But the psalmist is alluding to something upon which, in the law, upon which he's, he's making this claim. In other words, he's taking something that God said and uh, paraphrasing it for us as to what God was meaning. And he can do that, of course, since the Holy Spirit was inspiring him, the same God who gave the law, God the Spirit, and so on. But um, he wants, in Psalm 82, verse 6, he's uh, indicating that this is not something new, something the Holy Spirit is leading him to mention uh, based on something uh, in the law, but not a quote, direct quote from the law. Actually, as you study this in a little more detail, it seems that, what he is alluding to in Psalm 82, verse 6, comes from Exodus chapters 21 and, chapters tw and chapter 22. First of all, Exodus 21, verse tw 22, and then Exodus 22, verses 8 and 9. And guys, uh, those scriptures are in the Law of Moses, okay? But I'll just read you Exodus 21, verse 22, 
which says, if men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according to accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. The word judges there, interestingly enough, is the Hebrew word Elohim, which means gods, plural. In Hebrew, to add an I-M at the end of a word makes it plural, all right? Uh, the same Hebrew word is used in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which reads, In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now, in this context, it's talking about God Almighty, all right? Elohim. Interestingly, though, the noun is plural, Elohim. The Hebrews could, uh, they had a word for God that was singular, singular, L-E-L. Uh, they had a duel. So if you wanted to talk about just two gods, it would be Elah. If you were, wanted to talk about three or more, Elohim. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to use the word Elohim in the beginning, God, but the, the uh, is a plural noun, but then the verb that follows it, created, is in the singular. And that's grammatically incorrect. You don't put a plural noun with a singular verb unless like the Holy Spirit was wanting to do. He's communicating something to us uh, by using the language in such a way that is not grammatically correct, but it does communicate a very important spiritual truth right up front that you have uh, God in a plurality who created, singular, whoever this God is, he is one God in some kind of a plurality. Of course, we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as Christians, we don't worship uh, three gods. We worship one God uh, who is uh, one God uh, with three separate and distinct persons that make up the Godhead. So the very first verse in the Bible, God is communicating of himself the triunity of God. But getting back to, to Exodus 21, verse 22, when uh, God uses this uh, this uh, uh, word Elohim with regard to the judges of Israel. Here's how it actually reads. Verse 22, he, and again, we're talking about a man who accidentally hurts a pregnant woman while fighting with another man. He shall pay whatever the gods determine, the Elohim. God here called the judges of Israel gods, of course. God with a uppercase G called these judges gods, lowercase g, um, because they had the power of life and death over people, uh, in capital cases, of course. and Or in other words, they had power over people's destinies as uh, they stood before the judges in their courts, just as God has the power of life and death over us, to uh, the power to determine our destiny, and that would be our eternal destiny. Uh, these judges appointed by God and acting on his behalf did also have the power to control a person's destiny, uh, which is why God called them Elohim, or gods. We see the same thing again in chapter uh, in Exodus 22, a chapter later, and I'll read it to you, verses 8 and 9. If the thief is not found, you can read the context, but if the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought to the judges, the Elohim, to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For any kind of trespass, whether it concerns an ox, a donkey, a sheep, or clothing, or any kind of lost thing, which another claims to be his, the cause of both parties shall come before the judges, the Elohim, and whomever the judges, Elohim, condemn shall pay double to his neighbor. So that's the context, all right, uh, of, of Jesus' statement in John 10, 34, when he said, it is, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. Now you know that uh, he was talking about the judges of Israel who were acting in God's stead and meeting out justice on his behalf. However, if you read Psalm 82, and I'm going to read it to you in just a second, 
If you read Psalm 82, where the psalmist references Exodus chapters 21 and 22, where God once again called the judges of Israel gods, the Lord is quick to point out that these earthly judges, or gods, had corrupted themselves in their greed. And um, the psalmist is basically saying, because of that corruption, someday they're going to stand before the judge of the universe, God Almighty, the uh, Supreme Court, or the Supreme Judge of the universe, and be judged, these earthly judges who had corrupted themselves. Let me read to to you the psalm, Psalm 82, verse 1. God stands in the congregation of the mighty, and uh, the word Elohim could literally also be translated mighty. The idea was God's being mighty and so on. But God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. And so who's going to judge these earthly gods, quote-unquote? God Almighty. They represent Him, and if they corrupt themselves and misrepresent Him by not meeting out true justice, righteousness, They take bribes, they become corrupt. God says, I will judge them. I will judge them. Verse 2, how long, talking to these earthly judges, how long will you, you, the word is plural in the Hebrew, all these uh, earthly judges, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse 3, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are unstable. Verse 6, I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And then Asaph, the psalmist, breaks into a prayer. He says, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. So someday, you know, (laughs) my heart finds common ground with Asaph at this point. He's lamenting how that these earthly judges were supposed to represent God and uh, and mete out righteous judgment. You know, if the poor were being oppressed, they were to step in and, and uh, you know, and uh, judge those who were oppressing the poor. And they were, you know, they were supposed to be like God on the earth. You know, they, they were sitting in his place and so on, but they were corrupt. And the psalmist is lamenting and saying, I long for the day when the righteous judge of all the earth will come to the earth and establish his throne where there will be true righteousness throughout the earth. And I so find common ground with that idea. Uh, I am so tired of the rule of man and the corruption and just the lies. And I long for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back who will be himself the righteous judge and king of all the earth and will establish a kingdom where there will be no evil, no corruption, no injustice. I I am longing for that day more and more as time goes on. But again, guys, God called the judges of Israel gods, not because they were actually divine, you know that, but because they represented God when they judged the people. Okay, we get that. Okay, now we understand. But here's the thing that's a little troubling. What was the point Jesus is making here when he pointed out that in the law and in the Psalms, God called the judges of Israel gods? I mean, would it not have been easier when he said in verse 30, I and my father are are one, and they picked up stones to kill him, because they said, we don't stone you for any good works you've done, but for blasphemy, uh, because you being a man, make yourself God. I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it been, have been easier and a whole lot less confusing to simply have responded when they say, you're blaspheming, you're making yourself out to be God. Wouldn't it have just been simpler if the Lord Jesus had said, I am God. Okay, I am God. I've been telling you that for three years. What are you not getting? Everywhere I go, I've been claiming to be God. You're acting like this is the first time you've ever heard it. Wouldn't that have been, maybe you wouldn't have said it quite like that, but um, wouldn't that have been simpler? In my mind, it would have been so much simpler. Instead, when they said, you know, you're blaspheming, you're a man making yourself out to be God, here's how he responds, verse 34. Well, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's? 
if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Look, and I've wrestled with this verse over the years, trying to understand, Lord, what are you really saying here? I mean, you know, I, I know I wouldn't have responded that way. Of course, you know, I'm not God. But um, as I've studied this and kind of meditated on it, prayed about it, um, you know, first of all, you realize God never wastes his words. Um, he always has a purpose behind everything he does and says. And so if something sounds confusing, that's a great time to really pray about that passage and begin to uh, dig out things and, and, and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you because often there's something really neat that the Lord is uh, communicating, okay? But uh, again, God never wastes his words, okay? We can't say, well, Lord, you were wrong to put it this way, of course. The Lord Jesus is never wrong. He's God. So why did he put it this way, okay? Well, he always has a purpose beyond everything he does and says, it seems to me, as I've kind of thought on this, prayed about it, it seems to me that the reason Jesus responds in this way is because, listen, he is challenging these religious scholars and leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's who he was talking to. I think you go back to chapter 8 to, uh, to see that clearly. It's all one day, uh, you know, and, and from chapters 8 through 10, okay? Um, but he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you have to understand, folks, when it comes to religious leaders, um, they can often become very proud because they have their degrees. They're very learned, okay? You, you're just the simpleton. You know, we are, you know, the, the elite. Uh, we are the educated. They criticized Jesus at one point. How does this man know letters never having been taught? In other words, how does... Jesus, a simple carpenter's son, uh, know all these scriptures so well, he hasn't gone to our universities. A lot of pride with regard to people that have their, uh, their theological degrees and such. But that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. It just means sometimes he's got to uh, go the extra mile to reach them, to kind of break them out of their preconceived religious uh, frameworks and uh, their uh, interpretations of Scripture that they have held to for many years that have become solidified in their hearts to the point where, you know, they're not even looking for any other possibility. Maybe they're wrong. No, they're not wrong. In their minds, they're perfectly right on everything. They have come to believe what the Scriptures are saying. And so I believe that Jesus is kind of challenging these men. Again, out of his love, I believe, um, he's challenging their double standard, first of all trying to get them to rethink uh, how they interpret and apply Scripture. It's challenging, though, their double standard in the way they interpreted and applied the Scriptures. I mean, they had no problem with Psalm 82, verse 6. Now, remember, uh, you know, they didn't have the chapters and verse. Those came much later. Okay, our, our Psalm 82, verse 6. Uh, but uh, they had no problem with Psalm 82, verse 6, where God called the judges of Israel, listen, children of the Most High and gods, and yet they wanted to condemn Jesus for calling God his Father and himself God when he is the righteous judge who will someday judge the whole world in righteousness. He said that in John 5, verse 22. I mean, we have to understand something here, and you might not see it, but he is arguing from the lesser to the greater. I think Warren Worsby said it well when he said, and I quote, uh, though these people held high offices and were called Elohim, gods, uh, they were only humans and would be judged for their sins. Privilege brings responsibility and responsibility brings accountability. Jesus quoted Psalm uh, 82, verse 6, and John 10, verse 34, we just studied that, to defend his own claim to be the Son of God. For if the Lord called gods the imperfect human judges chosen by men, how much more should Jesus Christ be called the Son of God, he who was set apart by the Father and sent to the earth? In spite of their titles and offices, these judges would die 
like any other human and pay the price for their sins, when the Lord comes to judge the earth, no unbeliever, and many of these uh, judges of Israel were unbelievers, just like many in our own courts, most probably are unbelievers. Uh, but when the Lord comes to judge the earth, no unbeliever, judge or president or whoever, um, will escape his sentence, and his sentence will be just, uh, end quote. Again, guys, let me just say it one more time, we'll move on. It could be at this point in his ministry. Now, John 10, we're about four months from the cross at this point, okay? But it's, it could be that at this point in his ministry, that Jesus in his love for these men was still trying to break through to them, break through to them concerning the claims that he had been making about himself for three years now. Claims that they, the religious leadership, had consistently rejected. You know, there are people who uh, get so locked into their theological framework and interpretations of Scripture that they can't, as the old saying goes, see the forest from, for the trees or from the trees. In other words, they can't see the truth about Jesus and redemption, even though that truth is staring up at them from the pages of Scripture. In chapter uh, John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, again, Jesus indicts the religious uh, leadership, the spiritual leaders of Israel. He said to them, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the Scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. Look, having come from a Roman Catholic background, there are devout Catholics who do read the Bible all the time and still don't see that salvation is a free gift that we receive by faith when a person received Christ as their Lord and their Savior. They received the gift of eternal life. But there's a lot of folks, not just Catholics, who read the Bible all the time and um, still don't see that salvation is a free gift we receive by faith instead of a reward, a reward we earn by going to Mass, lighting candles, praying the rosary, and keeping sacraments and holy days throughout the year. Just like the scribes and Pharisees. It's amazing. The first time I sat uh, on an airplane next to a, a Jewish gal, I was going to a pastor's conference. We got to talking. Her father had just died, and she was very upset. I tried to uh, console her a little bit and witness to her. Uh, one thing I came away with was that even though I was a Roman Catholic and she was a, a Jew, a practicing Jew, it's amazing how much there was in common. And I, I just came to realize that religion, all religions have some common ground. And of course, that common ground is, uh, is using human works, um, you know, whatever the uh, rituals or ceremonies or uh, the religious observances or laws in that particular group. Uh, it's all about um, faithfully keeping these things to earn a place in heaven, or if they even believe in heaven, some other place. But um, very important that you understand that. Uh, the scribes and Pharisees were very religious men, very religious men. And as such, they, uh, they believed they could earn eternal life uh, through their religious works, rituals, ceremonies, and so on, uh, and didn't need Jesus. As a Roman Catholic, the Catholic Church didn't teach that, that Jesus wasn't needed. Uh, he was needed, but didn't provide everything for them to get to heaven. He started the work, and we Catholics had to finish it in our own lives by keeping the sacraments, going to Mass, praying the Rosary, you know, these kind of things. And then as we did these things, we would earn little installments of God's grace, that over time would accrue until I earned enough grace to purchase my salvation. Absolutely unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. Um, we never can earn. Grace means getting a free gift. It has nothing to do with earning a reward. Um, so thank God that Jesus did all the work. He said on the cross just before he dismissed his spirit, it is finished. The work of redemption is done. 
He didn't say, it's almost finished. Now, come on. I'm going to trust that you're going to do a great job and finish the work I've begun and earn the rest of yourself. No, he didn't say that. It is finished. The work is done. How do I get saved? Receive Jesus as your Savior. Uh, embrace his work on the cross on your behalf, and you will be saved as you believe he's the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again the third day from the dead. All right, let me just say this as we transition and then move to finish. I'd like to stop here and talk a little bit about how the Mormon church, this is one of their favorite passages, John 10, 34, how the Mormon church applies this scripture, again, John 10, 34, which is quoting, you know, Psalm 82, verse 6, uh, how they apply it when it's where God says, you are God's, you are God's. The, the Mormon church teaches that Mormons, if they keep the laws of the Mormon church and live an exemplary moral life, they will ascend to godhood when they die. Now, this is the desire of every Mormon to become a god someday and have their own planet, their own race of people, you know, starting with their own Adam and Eve, that kind of thing their own celestial family on some planet somewhere in the universe, all based on Jesus' statement where God calls them gods. Brigham Young, who was the second president of the Mormon Church, successor to Joseph Smith, speaking on June 8th, 1873, he was giving a sermon. And here's what he said in part. He said, and I'm quoting him, the devil told the truth. I do not blame Mother Eve. I would not have had her miss eating the forbidden fruit for anything in the world, end quote. Now, what he's referring to is Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, where the serpent, Satan in the form of a serpent, approached Eve. Adam was, I don't know where he was, he was watching a ball game or something, but he approached Eve and, uh, and tried to get her to eat the forbidden fruit the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had forbidden to eat from. And um, she said, well, we can't because God said we'll surely die. And uh, the devil said, uh, you will not surely die. The basis for reincarnation, hang on to that. There is no ultimate death. God knows in the day you eat of that fruit, you'll become God. You'll become like him, a God, all right? Hold on to that thought. Brigham Young is basically saying, and I'll tell you why he's bringing that up in just a second, but um, he is saying that, you know, um, the devil told the truth. Whenever you have a theology that says the devil is, is telling truth, uh, you better recheck your theology. He said, I don't blame Mother Eve. I would not have had her miss eating the forbidden fruit for anything in the world. He went on in that sermon to explain that this was, it was through Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit that the pathway, listen now, that the pathway to godhood was opened for humanity. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, said, and I'm quoting him, the fall of man came as a blessing in disguise. I never speak of the part Eve took in this fall as sin, nor do I accuse Adam of sin. We can hardly look upon anything resulting in such uh, benefits as being sin, end quote. Guys, Mormonism is based on the idea that the lie the serpent told Eve in the Garden of Eden, you won't surely die, reincarnation, you can become God, was actually the truth. Mormonism is based on the idea that the lie that Satan told Eve in the Garden of Eden was actually the truth. As I said, the idea that man can become a god is the foundation of Mormon theology and the goal of every Mormon. Many Christians believe that Mormons are Christians and that we all worship the same God. Why is that? Because the Mormon church over the last generation or so has reinvented itself uh, into a Christian denomination, all right? Because they want to reach Christians, okay? 
Um, they want people to think that they are a Christian denomination. Of course, you see it around Christmas time, the, the commercials and uh, the various uh, uh, things where you see the Mormon Tabernacle Church singing about the birth of Christ, and it gives people the impression that they're a Christian group. I thought it myself before I got saved and studied Mormonism, all right? Um, but that's not how they began. That's not how they began. In the beginning, uh, they did not pretend to be a Christian group. In fact, they had some very strong words against Christianity. Let me read to you what Joseph Smith said back then. He said, all Christian creeds are an abomination. That's his words. Brigham Young said, and I quote, all Christians are groveling in darkness and that the Christian's God is the Mormon's devil. Our God is actually their devil in the sense they think our God is the devil. They have the true God. We don't. John Taylor, the third president of the Mormon church, said, and I'm quoting him, Christianity was hatched in hell. It's a perfect pack of nonsense. The devil could not have invented a better engine to spread his work, end quote. Guys, Mormonism is a cult. It is a cult that combines elements of Christianity with Hinduism. The New Age movement, now known as the New Spirituality, is nothing more than westernized Hinduism, the main tenant being that all is God. That's pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that God is not a person but an invisible force that flows through everything, everything, all right? That pantheism means all is God, and since the, the God force is flowing through everyone and everything, that means we are all gods. The problem is, well, why do we know we're all gods? The problem is we forgot we're gods. That's what they teach. We forgot we, we're gods, and therefore we need to be enlightened, how does that take place? Well, through various spiritual exercises and techniques like visualization and transcendental meditation, and there's other things. Now, once you practice these techniques and all, and you are enlightened, once you realize that you are God, uh, with the God force flowing through you, and that you have unlimited power and potential, well, then, and only then, can you... Uh, uh, can you begin to use this power to work miracles, overcome weaknesses, heal sicknesses, gain wealth and success? In short, power to create your own reality and change the world for the better. You see, New Age theology is based on Hinduism. And Hinduism, uh, one of the beliefs of Hinduism is that what we perceive as reality is nothing more than an illusion created by our mind called a maya, a maya. If you don't like your reality, you need to visualize a different reality. If you're sick, visualize yourself healthy. If you're poor, visualize yourself uh, uh, you know, rich, standing in front of your mansion with your Rolls Royce out in front, that kind of thing. Because your reality is not a real thing, it's an illusion created by your mind, and if you can learn how to focus your mind on a different reality, it will come into, into play. It will, become a, it will become your reality. The Word of Faith movement has picked up on that. They have elements of, the, of, of Hinduism in their own, you know, in their own teachings. Um, they've gotten into the visualization to, uh, to visualize wealth and health and so on. I'll let you dig on that on your own. But um, the New Age movement's beliefs are not new at all. Again, they are a westernized version of Hinduism, which, listen now, has its roots as far back as the Garden of Eden. C.S. Lewis traced all major religions and cults back to two primary sources, Judeo-Christianity, which is God's truth, and Hinduism, which is Satan's lie, both of which started in the Garden of Eden. Both Hinduism and the New Age movement teach that the only obstacle 
that stands in the way of you reaching Godhood. And your full potential is the way you think. Again, it's all an illusion in your mind. So everything that's holding you back, everything that's keeping you from being all of that you could be, uh, is it reaching your full potential is, is because of the way you think, the way you perceive reality. Again, they teach that most people don't believe they're gods, uh, they're a, that they're a god, and therefore they impose on their own, excuse me, they know that most people don't understand they're god or part of this god force. They, they know that, um, and that's why they have problems. That's why they're poor and they're sick and so on, because they don't believe they're god, therefore they impose their own perceived limitations upon their reality. They tell us what a person needs to do to start tapping into the infinite power of the God force within them um, is to um, the God force within them uh, and use it to conquer sicknesses, poverty, bad habits, and other human failings is to realize, first of all, that you're God. And then after you realize you're God, you can start tapping into this uh, this God force, unlimited power potential that's within you. Uh, but until you do that, you're to continue to remain a failure in life. In that regard, guys, they tell us you are your own worst enemy. You're, you're, you're God. If you don't know that, it, you can't really draw from that power within you. It's your fault. It's your fault that you're a failure, that you have all these bad habits that you can't overcome, the cig cigarettes or the alcohol or the drugs, or you are walking in poverty or you you uh, are sick and whatever. It's all your fault because you either don't understand or refuse to believe that you are God with unlimited power flowing through you, this God force that you can tap into anytime you want once you know you're God. Until you know you're God and start tapping into that force, you're going to always remain a failure in life. And in that regard, you are your own worst enemy, they tell people. You are fighting against yourself. You need to let go and accept the divinity, excuse me, accept your divinity and be the God you were meant to be. Uh, I've taught this, uh, uh, this subject before. And whenever I do, I like to bring up some of the Star Wars movies. And I apologize if you haven't watched any of those. Um, I've, I've seen most of them. And, uh, it wasn't until I got saved that I was taught that George Lucas um, is very much into New Age thinking, and he believes in the Force and wanted to promote the religion of the Force. He is the Billy Graham of the Force, and he himself said those Star Wars movies were designed to teach you about the Force and how you can tap into it and realize your own godhood. But you remember in one of those movies where Luke is on a planet somewhere, remember his starship crashes, he's on a planet somewhere where he meets uh, Yoda. And you, you remember, you've seen the movies, uh, you understand. And uh, he's got a lot of fears about confronting his mortal enemy, Darth Vader, okay? And at one point, uh, Yoda has him enter into a cave somewhere on this planet, and to confront his fears. And all of a sudden, he, uh, his mortal enemy, Darth Vader, shows up, and they start to fight, and Luke takes his lightsaber and he uh, decapitates Darth Vader. And his head falls on the ground, and then as he looks down at Darth Vader's uh, severed head, he sees in Vader's helmet, not Vader's face, but his own face. What, what is that? Maybe you saw it and go, what does that mean? George Lucas was preaching New Age doctrine to you. Uh, that when it comes to tapping into the force and using it for good, the only thing or the only one hindering you from achieving complete divinity or godhood is you. Is you. Because you place limitations on yourself by the way you think. Darth Vader was not... Uh, Luke Skywalker's uh, enemy, because Luke could tap into the God Force anytime he wanted to have victory over Darth Vader. His problem was in the way he was thinking. His fears were getting the best of him. So in reality, he was going to be defeated because he 
was his own worst enemy. He was really fighting against himself. This was something that Yoda, Yoda, uh, who was the yogi of the force, something that uh, Yoda tried to teach Luke by having him lift his starship out of the swamp using the power of his mind. You remember that scene? And Luke tries, and he's really straining, and he's sweating, and he gets it a little bit out of the water, and it gets exhausted, and it just gives up, and it goes sinks back down to the bottom of the swamp, turns to Yoda and says, uh, you ask the impossible. You ask the impossible. At which time Yoda levitated Luke's starship from the swamp using the power of his mind, sets it on dry ground. Luke exclaims, I don't believe it. To which Yoda responds, that's why you failed, because you don't believe. Everything you need is in the power of your mind as you tap into the God force. If you don't believe it, you can't tap into the God force and use it properly. You'll always be hindered. You are your own worst enemy. It's all in the way you think. I have to close, but let me just say this in closing. Guys, I believe, and we've done a much uh, more detailed um, treatise of this subject. Uh, you can go back and, le and, and listen to uh, our uh, Battle for Truth series, I think parts uh, two and three. Also, I did a condensed version in one of our studies in John's Gospel, study number uh, 84, uh, from John 8, verse 44, part two. And uh, so you can check out that if you want. But let me just say this in closing. This is the lie the devil has sowed into the human race back in the Garden of Eden, like tares among the wheat, which has been growing and branching out and has become the lie of Hinduism, the New Age movement, Mormonism, and others that embrace this. Uh, I further believe that this is the lie the Apostle Paul warned us about in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, and 2 Thessalonians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. He talked about the lie. The world is full of lies. He has in mind a very specific lie. In fact, I think it's the mother of all lies that has given birth to all false doctrine on the face of the earth. He calls it the lie, definite article in the Greek, because it is not just any lie, it is the lie of all lies, okay? A very specific lie the Antichrist will use to deceive the world with to, to deceive the world with when he comes on the world scene, a lie that will be at the heart of the new religion. He will foist upon the world where he is worshipped as God, um, which I believe. I could be wrong. I, I I could be wrong, but I believe the word the religion of the Antichrist is going to be built around the fact that he is God. But listen, you can be a God too. I'll show you how. Follow me. Take my mark, okay? Get behind me. Embrace what I'm going to teach you. And as I have ascended to Godhood, you can too. That, I firmly believe that's what his religion is going to embody, okay? I'll read to you uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, that's the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, the true God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Cross-reference, uh, Matthew 24, where the Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and uh, causes the worship of the true and living God to cease when he sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, demands to be worshipped as God. That's what Paul is talking about. It's coming. It's coming, okay? The Antichrist, and Revelation tells us this, the false prophet will be the cheerleader, if I can put it that way, uh, encouraging the people of the world to come, follow the Antichrist, and be a member of his, of his new world order and his new religious system, which the uh, false prophet will kind of be the pope over. We'll get to that in our study in Revelation. But uh, let me just say this, we're done. I believe the very lie that caused the human race to fall in the beginning, 
I believe is going to be the ultimate deception that Satan is going to use against the human race in the end. It is the lie that Paul warned us would come into the church in these last days, and it has to the Word of Faith movement primarily. And the only thing powerful enough, guys, to defeat Satan's lies is God's truth. I'll just end with the words of Jesus, who said in John 8, verses 31 and 2, Jesus said to the Jewish religious leaders who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the context is free from Satan's lies. So that's it. We have to stop there. Come on back next week, and we'll pick up uh, John 10, because there's some other things we want to talk about before we then finish and move into chapter 11. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your truth uh, embodied in uh, uh, the Word of God, but of course uh, given to us from our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And Lord, we pray in these last days, these days of darkness and great deception, that Lord, you would give us an insatiable hunger for your Word, for your truth, that as we walk in it, marinate ourselves in it, uh, and follow it closely and, uh, and uh, faithfully, we will never stumble in darkness, but will walk in the light of your truth all the way uh, to glory, in, in a sense. And so, Lord, we must, because the devil's lies are becoming more um, powerful, incessant, per pervasive, we need, we must know your word like never before. Give us grace to do that, Lord, and to keep studying your word faithfully. And we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.